Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io, a leading collaboration platform for filmmakers. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking with Pippa Ehrlich, who, as editor, writer, and director, just won a BAFTA and was nominated for an Oscar for her very first production. She was also nominated for an Ace Eddie for Best Editing in a Documentary. The film was also directed by James Reed and was also written and edited by Dan Schwalm, who couldn't join us for this conversation. But Pippa wanted to make sure that credit went to everyone who worked on the film. I caught up with her on Zoom, Seaside, in South Africa. It's wonderful to meet you. I've watched the movie twice now, and I just loved it. My wife loved it. Everybody I know that has talked to loved it. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit to start just about structure. Structure is always really interesting to me in a documentary. I've edited a bunch of documentaries and the structure changes. Did this change or were you pretty much on a scripted, we know what's going on story? No, the structuring of this film was a very fluid process. And it actually went through two major restructuring processes. I think even the way we worked as a team was actually pretty unstructured. In the beginning, it was... Craig and I with a pile of hard drives and we were sitting together and we were both directing and editing at the same time. And we started off with a story that was very broad because I think that the challenge in an edit is you often having to get so much information in, in an engaging way, because you don't want to lose people before you've even got to the story. So there was a lot of background to get through because you're trying to tell the story of 48 years of human life and what got this character to a place where they were in a space where making friends with an octopus was even a possibility for them. So, yeah, we had all kinds of options for structure, and eventually we settled on something that was fairly linear. It was very different to the original treatment that we spoke about. Much of the scaffolding sequences that we started with, which were backstory, philosophical things about indigenous wisdom and things that Craig had learned from the Kalahari San Bushman, even some kind of more general natural history sequences about the kelp forest and how it functions as an ecosystem, those things started to fall away as soon as we got into the story of the octopus. And then she actually created the structure for us. And that's quite an amazing thing because the story really is fairly contained. It's a year of this animal's life and all of the incredible drama that she experiences through the eyes of this human being who witnesses her. So phase one, of the edit was Craig and I sitting together for hundreds of hours, chipping away. We had thousands of hours of footage, some of it very deep archive, a lot of it archived from the year that he filmed the octopus herself. And then other stuff that we were shooting along the way, which was shots of Craig in the water, because there was very little of him when we started the project. Anyway, we got to the point where we had a powerful story, a very well-established core narrative, which was the relationship between Craig and the octopus, her trials and tribulations, and also how it had changed him because it had been such a transformative process for him. But it was all scripted. So it was Craig's voiceover, but absolutely written according to a script. And what happened at that point was we realized that there was something in the voice that wasn't working as well and as authentically as it should. And the film landed on the desk of my 
amazing co-director James Reed. And I think our EP had a good sense that he would be the right person for the job because he's made a number of films that rely on this kind of single person narrative as told through an interview. So he watched the film and he watched the footage and he got really excited and he was on a number of different jobs at the time. So we were delighted that he was willing to consider the project and immediately he picked up like what this film needs is an interview. And I was really excited about that because it was something that we had tried but just hadn't got right. And I think part of the thing was I was so deeply embedded in the story at that point. Craig had told me the story so many times in so many different forms that when I tried to sit him down in front of me with a camera, it wasn't coming out spontaneously anymore. So yeah, James flew out to South Africa, sat Craig down. It was an absolutely grueling interview, three days of interview at the kitchen table. And we got gold. Craig sat down with someone who had never heard the story before had a completely fresh approach, and he told the story as if he'd never told it before. Then we went back to Bristol, and then it was actually an incredibly demanding process. And then another editor came on during this part of the process, Dan Schwalm, also an incredibly sensitive and experienced natural history editor. I wish he could have joined me today. And James and Dan and I sat and tirelessly kind of went through, I think at that point we probably had 12 hours of interview which we needed to cut down to 90 minutes. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and the entire structure of the film comes from the interview. There's not a single written line in that script. So a lot of the time you are finding gems. Sometimes the interview just flows and matches the picture perfectly. And that was really great. There were some things that came across so beautifully in the interview that even though we hadn't gone into them too much in our original cut, we needed to bring them alive. And then sometimes you're just scouring those 12 hours for lines mm-hmm. because you just need the right line to move the story along to the next place. So it's definitely a difficult way of telling a story, but very rewarding for us because it really worked. Yeah. Tell me about that interview process, because if it took place over three days, I'm assuming you were listening in or... Yeah, I was actually shooting second camera. Oh, shooting second camera. Beautiful. Since you had three days, were you thinking each night, oh, we need this or we need this connective tissue, this story isn't included? Tell me a little bit about prompting more in those later days and hours of the interview. The incredible advantage that we had when we started the interview is we knew exactly what the story was. And we actually knew exactly what we needed from Craig and we couldn't force him to say anything in a particular way because then the authenticity would have been lost. But we knew what we were listening for. And James and I did a huge amount of preparation before he even got to South Africa. And he made a point of only speaking to Craig once, very briefly, and not going into the story at all so that it would all be fresh. So yeah, I was sitting behind that camera, making sure everything was in focus the whole time. But also, as you said, I had this list of questions running through my head and list of places where I was like, okay, well, that line's really going to work. But I think what he said here, you know, needs to be developed a little bit more. And the advantage of doing something over three days, especially with a character like Craig, he's quite an introvert and he's shy and he was resistant to being on camera in this way, which is why we tried the other approach originally. But three days in, he got to the point where he was actually enjoying the conversation with James. And he really trusted James. And that's why he was able to be so vulnerable. Yeah, it was a beautiful interview. I was curious because I've done those interviews before too. And 
there's always something in my head going, uh, I haven't got this yet. Okay, that's off. Check that off the list, right? <laughs> You're the perfect person to be there knowing the story so well. And because I wasn't asking the questions, I had a bit more space in my head to go forward. But even despite that, we had to do pickup interviews. So then we ended up with 15 hours of interview <laughs> that had to be cut down to 90 minutes. Did you bother shooting the later interviews? Because you could just do them audio, of course. No, we shot them. We shot yeah. them. And actually, Sarah Edelson, our EP at Netflix, came out from the States and helped us do those. Oh, nice. So I was walking through the idea, right? It's a cold open with the ocean and the octopus. And then there's these opening titles and the story of the trackers. And then the diving and the octopus comes along. I love the fact that the research that he does about the octopus isn't until halfway through the film almost. You don't front load that like, oh, we got to tell people about octopi. No, people will find out later. We wanted people to go on that journey of discovery with Craig. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more fact that we could have put in and that we actually would have loved to put in. And it was not easy choices to make. I mean, you end up with a timeline with all of your golden lines that you desperately want to get into the film. And many of them just don't make it. Yeah. Got to kill your babies, right? Sadly. Yeah, that was one of those things. And, and I'm not criticizing in any way. I'm interested in hearing your thought process. Because one of the things that you were talking about, that there was so much backstory, right? There's so much backstory about Craig's life and how he got to this point where he felt broken. And I thought that there was just enough of it, but I thought they're really not explaining too much about how he got to this point. But it sounds like you actually had that in earlier versions. And later versions and middle versions. And we were still changing, pulling out lines in our final version before delivery. The end of this film was an absolute breeze to cut. The beginning was a jigsaw puzzle of epic proportions. We anguished over things. And we would send that opening sequence to different people at different times to get their opinions. It was really hard to find the balance. As you said, we cut one version where we went quite deep into his mental state and why he was depressed and what it caused his depression. But you ended up feeling really, really sad. Um, <laughs> and we, we were worried that if people were too sad and it went too low before we got to the octopus and the space of retribution, then we'd lose people. And mm. that was putting in a, the pre-title, the hard opening that you spoke about. That wasn't an easy thing to come to either. We started our story at the beginning and we had a very linear opening at first. But we felt like we needed to give people a sense of what was coming along because we knew we had to deal with the backstory. And what was amazing about this film is it really was a collaboration. There was not much of a hierarchy. And I think that was difficult in some ways. We probably took much longer than we needed to. But it means that every single thing that you see has been thoroughly interrogated by five or six different minds. We call it a hive mind approach. And different ideas came in at different times. Like that shot of Craig walking along the coast and talking about how wild and rough this place is and what he remembers from childhood. That was a story that he told to Sarah Edelson. And we realized it was going to be so powerful and so visceral. And we knew that we could get the shots to bring that to life. And that ended up being our opening to the backstory. So, yeah, I think it was an unusual film to make in that we made it on our doorstep. And it was a constant back and forth process. You're never like, okay, this is what's in the can. This is all we have to work with. Apart from the interview, and obviously the octopus footage was finite because Craig captured what he could capture before she died. 
But other things, it was kind of the possibilities were endless. If we needed a specific shot, I was sitting in the edit and I was like, oh, I just need a close-up of Craig's feet walking along the path in perfect dawn light. No problem, we could get it. <laughs> I have this fantasy that the beautiful light that's falling on your face right now is coming from an ocean view. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> look at that. That's exactly what I was picturing. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that is so funny. That is exactly what I was picturing. I'm like, there's no way. She's sitting in a city and <laughs> no, that's very funny. It's such an interesting film because you kind of mentioned that you had ideas of, oh, we're going to explain how the kelp forest works and all this. Mm. It could have been a very natural history kind of take on it. And it felt almost like a character study instead Absolutely. yeah and that is a byproduct of having all these different minds and perspectives on it there was a creative team that made these choices it started off with craig and i and his wife swati would come and, and watch what we were doing and she was a little bit distance from us so she gave us a whole lot of input our executive producer and then windermouth came on board and she's known craig for a very long time as well so she really understood what makes him tick so she had a whole lot of ideas around that and then James came on board and had this very fresh approach, but that was immediately what appealed to him. And then we had the other editor, Dan, and Jinx Godfrey, our edit consultant. And yeah, I'm a natural history journalist and writer. So a part of me was inclined to go that way. And we thought about interviewing octopus scientists and interviewing kelp forest scientists. That fell away very early on in the process. The vision for this film emerged. It wasn't absolutely crystal clear right from the beginning mm. we were all flexible along every part of the process yeah that was going to be another one of my questions because i mean i love this one thread of this one guy carrying this thing but it's very unusual like you mentioned that one of the executive producers has done a bunch of these films but i'd never really seen a documentary that was just one person talking and it's usually oh let's get the expert on octopus and let's get the expert on the kelp forest and Let's talk to an oceanographer. And there's none of that. So it's very interesting. That was an idea, but it fell away. Yeah, it fell away quickly as well. Oh, it fell away quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you felt like the octopus was your thread between the two of them, or the relationship, I should say. Yeah, we felt like that octopus's character was so compelling. And it's a dangerous thing to say, and you have to be very careful with it. But as much as we could, we wanted to get a sense of the world through the eyes of the octopus and get a sense of Craig actually through the eyes of the octopus. So as much as he's watching her, she's watching him. And it was actually my co-director, James, who's made a couple of films like this. The film is a portrait of a completely subjective experience. This is Craig's story, Craig's memories, a record of what he experienced, and it's his own testimony. Maybe that appealed to people because that it wasn't an expert telling them what they thought and what was scientifically proven. It was someone who had an experience and sharing it as vulnerably as he could. Yeah. No, I think that was definitely, for me, the thing that reached me by this film. But like you said, it could have been just a film about an octopus. I mean, it could have taken him completely out of it. Could have all been about the struggles of an octopus and you do it as a natural history film. Yeah. And those are really interesting yeah. questions. The most important thing that I thought that I needed to know as I watched the film, because you said that you left a lot of information out for the audience. The one thing I didn't know is how long does an octopus live? And so we learned that early. 
And then on screen, there's these graphics telling you what day it is. Can you tell me, did you try it without those? And what did you feel the value was of putting those graphics on screen? It was to give people a sense of time passing. And I suppose it creates a sense of bittersweetness and urgency as well. We didn't just arrive at that point. We tried a number of things. At one point, we had chapter headings. But there was something very powerful when Craig says, what happens if I go every day? What happens if I never miss today? And those day markers just became a really powerful device for moving the story forwards in time and space. And in earlier cuts, we hadn't had them. And I think there were a lot of questions around, okay, well, how long did it take for this to happen? And how long did it take for that to happen? This just was a really useful device for us. And it helped to keep things simple as well. I edited for Oprah Winfrey for a long time, and we had very strict rules about when you could go on camera to someone. Can you tell me about when you chose to show Craig on camera? There's not a lot of them. It's not that there's nothing, but they're very specifically selected times when you cut, Tim. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I think that's a combination of the significance of what he's saying. Of course, when he's looking very emotional and he's choking up, it makes sense to see him on camera because it's valuable for the audience to get a sense of how real what he was going through really was. Times when actually seeing him say something, and generally we had enough footage, we could have just had beautiful footage, but there were times when he said things when you really, really wanted to see him say it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think there were any rules, to be honest. So thinking it, those it, same it, things. It was, it was intuitive. It was really an intuitive process and the footage of the underwater footage and topside footage was so engaging so we didn't want to use the interview too much but yeah there were no rules yeah and another thing that I, I was mostly emotion I was trying to is think like an editor when I was watching it I'm like okay there's a very emotional moment with him there was also a bunch of stuff where it was very emotion based you cut to him when he was trying to explain something with his hands or he was moving a lot or there were a couple of match frame edits I felt like where the footage was moving in a certain way and then you cut to him and he's moving in the same, he's almost trying to explain the footage you're seeing, it's kind of funny. Another thing I was interested in finding out whether you felt like you needed to structure was the land-based stuff. Mm. Do we spread out him in his home and him on the beach and him above water? Absolutely, we started off with early cuts where almost everything happened underwater and there were very few wide shots. It was all close-ups and mids. And one of our associate producers, Sam Barton Humphreys, had a look and said, I feel a bit claustrophobic and I feel like I don't know where I am. So then we went back and we started working with drone shots and some topside shots of Craig. And then we actually got into quite a difficult situation because the underwater world is so magical. It's so otherworldly, it's so organic, and it's hard to match that with normal topside photography, actually. It was really jarring. And then we met this incredible young cinematographer called Warren Smart, who shoots in a way that I've just never seen anybody work. He takes his lens off his camera and bleeds light in through the edges. And he was able to create an underwater feeling above water. And he was able to create very subtle shots because sometimes we didn't want to go into too much detail about things but we just wanted the audience to feel what we meant and he could do that it was very very fortunate 
Yeah, I can think of two shots because I didn't realize that was a consideration. But now that I do, two shots come to mind that are magical. One of them, he's looking through a window. Craig's looking through a window and there's like light rays or something. It's yeah, just, yeah, exactly. It almost felt like he was underwater. And another was one when he was looking at his wall of stuff that was all pinned on it. And that also felt like something special was done, something magical with the cinematography. So everything Warren does is magical. He never stands still. He never does a static shot. (laughs) And he will shoot and shoot until the timing is perfect and the movement is perfect and the light is perfect. So as an editor, when I'm working with his stuff, I always know, okay, just go to the last shot because he would have have stopped when he was happy. (laughs) Don't even bother looking at the ones before that. Uh, That's very funny. I know a lot of people, even in narrative, it's funny that they start to learn actors that way. They learn this actor is always good on the first take. This actor is always good on the last take. Just look at the first or the last. (laughs) Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love that. And I hadn't thought about that, that it would be jarring to go from this magical world to a much more straight world. I never felt those jumps. No, but it took us a long time to figure out how to get that right. I mean, this film has taken, you know, if you include Craig's year with the octopus, it was like five years of working in actually a very focused way. A year of the octopus, three years of editing, and then another year of work before it released because of all the other things that have to happen with Netflix. So yeah, it's a long time. Wow. And we really, we could just experiment and experiment until we were happy. Very expensive to work that way, but you get a good result. Absolutely. And we, we needed the topside world as well because not everyone can relate to being underwater all the time. We had to bring it back to the human world at times as well. And that was sitting Craig down at his kitchen table, which was James's brilliant idea. It was an incredibly effective device in that way. And I definitely would have felt that same claustrophobia to be underwater that long. And the other thing is, you know that he's holding his breath. That's made clear at the beginning. And you only show him surface like three times in the entire movie. So I was definitely like, go up for air right now. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Pippa Ehrlich. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading or downloading files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io. Now that remote workflows are the new normal, filmmakers need a better way to collaborate with their teams and clients. Frame.io keeps editors, directors, producers, and DPs connected no matter where they are in the world. You can shoot in London, cut in New York City, and review in L.A. all at the same time before production even wraps. Frame.io's cloud-based platform helps you work at lightning speed, and their industry-leading security keeps your team and your assets safe. Head over to frame.io to start your free trial today. 
And now back to my conversation with Pippa Ehrlich. I want to talk about one match shot because I want to talk about the editing of this. There's a lovely shot where he's brought his son down underwater with him to meet the octopus. And the sun goes up spinning up towards the surface. And as he goes up, it cuts to a drone shot that's also going up. Can you talk about how many of those things are happy accidents and how many you're watching the sun go up and you're like, we've got that drone shot that goes up. Let's <laughs> talk to me about no that. Accidents. No, no I'm so accidents. I'm so proud of that cut. <laughs> I I'm bet so you are. I'm so proud of that cut. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. I noticed it. Absolutely. Yeah. And Jinx, uh, a consultant, she's also like... I like what you did there. So I, I was, yeah, I was stoked about that one. And I love matches. I love graphic matches and I love motion matches and I use them wherever I can. And there are a few more in there. I was going to say, I, that's the one that I noticed, but I'm sure there were others. I was positive there were others. There's a place just before Craig starts exploring the kelp forest in the beginning, where I think I cut from a shot of the kelp moving this way. And then there's a seamless cut to him diving down from the surface and moving. I mean, I think what I love about them is you can move quickly without having to transition too much. It saves you a lot of time, but it's all dependent on finding shots that work together. With so much footage, can you tell me how you organized this? Was it like, okay, here's the interview. How was it organized? (laughs) (laughs) It can't have been chaos. It had to have been structured in some way. Come on. Craig has an enormous archive of hard drives, which he has an almost encyclopedic knowledge of. In the same way that he tracks animals underwater, he can track his way through those hard drives. So if I needed him to find something, he had a little desk like on the other side of his attic where we were editing it and he could find shots. So that was how most of the archive was handled then absolutely we had a a master drive with the interview on it and we had bins with just interview stuff and that's a huge bulk of the edit because it's 15 hours of interview you've picked out your selects and then you've got to label your selects within that according to the different themes that he's speaking about at different points in the process then there was a lot of incredible blue chip footage shot on red by craig's friend roger horrocks that was in a different folder. We had a, a topside folder, an underwater folder, many, many octopus folders. Yeah, I'd never done a big film like this before. So I would have a much tidier workflow on the next one. I, I learned the hard way. But yeah, we made it work. Yeah, I was just thinking of the craziness of all of that footage. And of course, the natural history stuff interests me because I've never done a natural history film. And you think that has just got to be so much content so much stuff to go through especially when you're dealing with two cameras when roger comes in so you've got his amazing red stuff and then you've got craig's authentic handheld stuff that he's shooting at the same time and even though they were filmed at the same time you've got to be quite conscious of are these shots going to match if we cut them together it's an awful lot of content and there's a lot that didn't make it into the film of course because we had so much to work with but You can tell when you're watching something that's really compelling. So that stuff just goes in. And you kind of answered the one question I had, which was basically about shot sizes and, hey, I need him walking. I need footsteps. I need, you know, that's so interesting. The sound was wonderful. Tell me about the use of sound. How much did you try to do in the picture cut and how much did a sound team do? I spent a long time playing with sound, especially in the first cut that we did. And that kind of 
translated while Dan was working as well. And you figure out how you can kind of warp things to make it sound like they're happening underwater. And it's hard to do sound for underwater because either you make it very literal, but it's going to be a very quiet soundtrack then. And we took the approach of being a little bit more creative and using sound to give people an experience of what it was like to be there at the time. What does it sound like when an octopus throws her web over a lobster? It doesn't sound like anything when you're underwater, but what does it feel like? Well, it feels like a thunderclap that you've stretched out to 25% and warped slightly. So yeah, we had so much fun and it went to another level in post-production when our sound mixer, Barry Donnelly, came on board. And he's actually been diving with Craig since they were four years old. So the house that you see at the beginning of the film, Barry used to play with Craig there when they were little boys. So he knows the kelp forest backwards as well. And he knew exactly the kind of feeling we were going for. And he knows how Craig's work, mind works creatively. So he did things like bring kelp stripes into his studio and record them at different pitches and rub them together and do all sorts of things to give you the sense of a creaking kelp forest at an ominous moment. They had buckets and buckets of water in the studio for Foley where they were making little splashes of fishes. He came out into the water with us and recorded things underwater. He spent a long time just standing on the surface, stretching his microphone out to get Craig splashing at the surface and breathing at the surface. What does it sound like when he goes down? What does it sound like when he comes up and he needs to, and he's like gasping for air? And a similar process happened with the score. Craig's son, Tom, who you see in the film. So he's a super talented musician. He's super talented full stop. He actually filmed all the drone shots that you see were filmed by Tom, except for the ones that he's in. But him and Craig spent a long time recording different sounds that kelp can make and all sorts of different sounds. They just went out and played really. And those sounds ended up in a folder, which went to Kevin Smith, our composer, and he warped them and changed them and put them together. And there's some places in the film, for example, the second chase sequence, where it's not music, it's a soundscape. And that entire soundscape is created from organic sounds from the kelp forest. That was actually a question, because at that exact moment, I'm like, is this score? Is it sound? I couldn't tell. That's beautiful. And so they actually foliate stuff, because I was thinking of like the crab. It lands in the sand and makes a noise, and you just don't hear those things when you're diving underwater. underwater. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So none of those sounds were like with an underwater microphone. They were done above ground or... Some of them were, not the crab's feet on the sand. Yeah. We chose to take that creative approach, but the buzz track will be sound that's actually recorded underwater. There's an animal called a cracker shrimp, which I still have never seen underwater. Yep. It lives inside the kelp stipes. So there we went down and recorded the sound in the kelp forest itself. The sounds of the whales were recorded in real life as well. And then all of the topside stuff, Craig's feet walking along the sand, that was from sound recording. So yeah, we just did what we could. We tried to keep it as authentic as possible. Talk to me about temping and how that changed when you got score. So we brought Kevin and his partner, Matt, on as soon as we started working on the film. Kevin and Craig have also made three or four, maybe five or six films together. So he was really excited and he actually wrote a whole lot of music right up in the beginning with Matt. And many of those songs you actually hear in the film now, but of course it wasn't enough. And at the time we had no budget. I was living on a stipend from the Sea Change project. Craig was self-funding everything. It was only later when Off the Fence came on board and then Netflix came on board that we could actually pay anyone anything. 
So Kevin was very patient uh, and he moved on to other projects for a bit until we were ready. So yeah, we had a kick-ass term score and we didn't play small either. We had Hans Zimmer in there. <laughs> uh, we had Ludovici and Naldi. We... <laughs> so... Did you ever want to send a cut to Netflix with John Williams' Jaws music? Just... <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We didn't think of that, but maybe we should have just as a joke. And the temp score was really good. And I remember like one of the first comments Jinx made when she first saw the film. And I have to give a lot of credit to Dan Schwalm for his selection of music when he worked on the cut. It was fantastic, the tracks that he chose. And Jinx was really excited about what we'd done. And Netflix got really used to the idea that this was be the tone of the music and how the film is going to sound so then when it got to kevin who is just one guy he's the same age as me he'd never delivered a film to netflix before he was intimidated we realized we really set the bar very very high here and he worked so hard and we rewrote things sometimes we kept improving the same song otherwise we went back to scratch scoring the film was really difficult but i'm so happy that people love the music as much as they do because honestly kevin worked his butt off and he really deserves the, the incredible response he's got to his work when you were trying to construct things early on were you just building scenes or was it more like finding the structure and almost doing a radio cut and filling in the radio cut or a little of both or our goal was to do three minutes per day in the beginning that's what we were aiming for and you know, we started off with the beginning and we had something we were happy with, but it was difficult. Yeah. So we started off building scenes. And then I think actually the first thing that we cut that we were really happy with was the chase sequence. We knew that was a powerful scene. And sometimes you just need something that's working really well to give you the confidence to get the other parts right. And mm -hmm. there was another, when I cut the scene of where Craig goes down and he sees the octopus doing the strange thing. And it turns out she's playing with the fish. And then there's this really bittersweet moment where he says, this is the last time, you know, I never saw this again. And this was the last time we ever had this kind of contact. And then you go into this really tragic, but also beautiful end of the octopus's life. And something about those 10, 12 minutes just worked so well and felt so magical and poignant that then you have a good feeling for, okay, how do we want this film to feel? How do we know when something's really working? And then you take that tone and that feeling and you go back to other parts of the story and you use it to inform them. And that was how we worked. Yeah, once we were working from the interview, it changed slightly. I think that approach was more start at the beginning and go through to the end. But, you know, editing is hard and you get to a point where you're just like, I'm tired of trying to make this work and you need to do something easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times that's like organization or just finding another scene or I know I could do this scene that's easy. Let's do that. Get it out of the way. Exactly. I was really interested in you self-identifying as you were saying you're a journalist, a nature journalist. Do you feel writing and editing are similar? Did you come to editing because you were a journalist and you just learned editing or the other way around? So I studied documentary filmmaking. So I've been editing, you know, since I was in my early 20s. And then I've always really loved it. And then I think the last job I had, they needed, it was an incredible job, but they needed me to write more than they needed me to edit. And that kind of sucked. So I ended up doing a lot of editing on the side as well. But I think writing really helps you to learn about storytelling. 
and helps you to really organize your thoughts. It's definitely made me a much better editor, all of the writing that I did. And it's easy to experiment with structure when you're writing something because you can just move the paragraphs around and change your transitions. When you've got a 90-minute sequence on the timeline and you have to make one tiny change, it's an absolute nightmare and you twist yourself up into knots. So, yeah, I think the two work hand in hand very well. Could you describe some of those scenes, those beautiful moments you said you had golden stuff that you had to discard? And how and why do you discard great stuff? So there was a lot of stuff. There were some incredible scenes of Craig's son and experiences he's had with sharks. Because before Craig had this amazing experience with the octopus, Tom was on his own journey where he's been diving with his dad his whole life. And he's obsessed with sharks. And they've taught him so much. And we toyed with having a parallel storyline where as Craig's getting to know the octopus, Tom's getting to know sharks. And we had beautiful sequences of Tom and the sharks. But it's a whole story on its own. We realized quite quickly we were trying to do too much. And now Netflix is going, okay, we're ready for that one too. <laughs> we want the shark. <laughs> we want my shark teacher. <laughs> yeah, that'll be up to Tom. He's very focused at the moment on music and drumming. Uh, <laughs> But then there was this incredible scene in the beginning when Craig's still learning how to move through the forest and learning how to deal with animals, where he's swimming next to a giant stingray. And this is the same stingray, actually, that killed Steve Irwin. Massive, four meters wide, huge animal. And he's swimming behind it, and suddenly it turns around, and it comes right back over him. And it just covers his whole body and it's like hovering above him for a second before moving off. So it's an incredibly dramatic scene. But it became, and we really wanted to include it, but it became a block between the beginning of the story and getting to the story of the octopus. We had other scenes where Craig is in the middle of a shiver of 32 meter sharks. It's just visually mind blowing. And we worked very hard to get those shots as well. So when you've been going out day after day after day and you finally get them and you're so excited and you come back to edit and you cut the scene and they make it through various rounds of the approval process but then you get to the end where you've just got to be so strict and that was kind of agonizing and there was a point in the process where James had gone back onto his other projects because he was working on a number of series at the same time that he was working on the film and Craig had become the subject so it had become really difficult for him to make certain creative decisions because it's hard to make decisions about your own story so then i was editing and directing on my own which is actually not something that i would ever do again i don't think because you need an objective perspective it's very challenging amazing to have all the control but you shoot yourself in the foot at the same time and what was so amazing then is to have jinx on and she guided me through different things and you know in a very gentle and thoughtful way like just Help me kill those babies. That is one of those things that I wanted to talk about because just in the way that an edit can bump, a scene like that can bump your story. But I can't imagine killing that because you're not worried about time, right? Netflix doesn't care if it's an extra 30 seconds long or a minute. So what was it that made you finally make that terrible decision to cut that scene? Well, I mean, you described it a little bit, but what was it doing to that exact moment that, you couldn't have it be doing? It was more like six minutes for a start. Oh, six. Okay. <laughs> if you put the sharks and the wraith together, maybe four and a half. And I think what had happened is there was some backstory that we'd wanted to include that we hadn't included beforehand. 
And we felt like it was very important to have that in there because you need to understand Craig. As much as you need to understand the environment, you need to understand the octopus. And once we'd done that, we just knew we needed to get to that octopus story. And it was distracting, actually, to be dealing with these big charismatic predators because it's a whole other tangent that you could have gone on then. We had to stay focused, but that was two and a half years into a three-year edit that we finally admitted to ourselves. You know, it was in the last month before Picture Lock that we dropped those scenes. Wow. And what was the actual schedule? So when did Craig start filming this octopus? Sometime in 2015. 2015. Got it. Two questions for you before I let you go. Did you use cards on the wall for structure? Did you lay things out in that method or no? No. And I wish we had. No. We had notebooks and sheets of paper and lots and lots of things going on in our brains. We knew what the different themes were and what the different threads were. And I guess we cut our scenes all on separate timelines before we put them all together. But no, we didn't work that way. We had a kind of a more linear approach, I guess. Sure. And was there any concern, and we talked about this a little bit, was there any concern that the audience doesn't really understand the geography of the kelp forest? Do you really need to know where he is and where exactly the den of the octopus is in space? Was there any thought about that? Yeah, there was a lot of thought about that. I don't know if we solved it too well, to be honest. It'd be hard, I would think it would be. Yeah, and it's not just that. This is a very special place to us. It's the place that Craig's invested in for a long time. He knows it extremely well. And you're putting a film on Netflix. So you don't necessarily want 200 million people to know exactly where that octopus lived. So you want to give people a sense of scale and you want to give them a sense of, okay, parts of the kelp forest are very thick and parts are more open. And we spoke about the misty forest and the old growth forest. And there are lots of aerial shots so you can see what it looks like from above. But no, we wanted to be vague about exact locations. That was very intentional. Yeah. Even inside the forest, I was just thinking when he dives, how does he know where he's going or the space that Uh, he's in? Yeah, that's interesting. And actually, in one of the earlier cuts, we had a whole sequence where he spoke about mapping out the forest. And it was something that he'd learned from the sign Bushman. That was something that had translated across. And we showed him going to different places in her territory, mm-hmm. more or less. Yeah, I saw there's um, like a map sequence, a hand-drawn map. Yes, right? in exactly. the film. Yeah, it is in the film. Exactly. So that's there. And, you know, when you're underwater, it is very disorientating. I guess we could have explained how big her territory was in terms of size and maybe it came into one of the interviews and we asked the question but that's where you're limited when you make a film like this you can't write the line you can't explain exactly what you want it to be you've got to work with what you have yeah well he does say i think it's 200 meters square or something like that yeah i was just interested in like you're trying to figure out where are these sharks and does she have multiple dens where's this den you know (laughs) Yeah, I think that we, we said just not far away, there's the den full of cat sharks. And he said something about, I lost her over here, but I found her not far away a week or so later. These are all things that you start to think about as the process goes on and as you start showing it to people and you hear what their questions are. Pippa, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's just an amazing film. Congratulations on great work. Thank you so much, Stephen. Bye-bye. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut. 
conversations with film and TV editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Pippa Ehrlich. Also, thanks to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to our sponsors for making this podcast possible, Evercast and Frame.io. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film loving friend.